We know you have lots of questions. If you think that you've developed symptoms. Should I avoid large public gatherings? Whether schools should be closed. Welcome to Common Sense. Here we address your questions about COVID-19 with interviews featuring experts in medicine and leaders in community, public, and global health. Here's your host, Dr. Ted O'Connell. Welcome to our podcast, COVID-19, Common Sense Conversations on the Coronavirus Pandemic. I'm your host, Dr. Ted O'Connell. Before we get started, I want to make a brief public service announcement. A lot of the restaurants and small businesses in our communities are suffering, and so are those who own them and those who work there. I've been asking some of our guests on the podcast to give a shout out to a few local businesses as we encourage our audience to try to support the small businesses in their communities. So in the community where I live, which is Green Valley, California, I'd like to mention the Napa Deli, which has always been a great supporter of our community activities, especially during the fires, Chats Indian Cuisine, and Palm Thai Bistro. And I want to encourage people to go out and support them by picking up some takeout if you're able, and then return to your home with that food and practice social distancing. I also want to give our usual disclaimer that this is a rapidly evolving topic about COVID-19, and so anything that we discuss in this interview today may have changed by the time you listen to it. My guest today is Dr. Jennifer Babick, who specializes in clinical infectious diseases at UC San Francisco and has a particular focus on infections in immunocompromised individuals. Dr. Babick received her undergraduate degree from Princeton University and a PhD in physiologic sciences from the University of Oxford before receiving her medical degree from Stanford University School of Medicine. Dr. Babick then completed her residency training in internal medicine and a fellowship in infectious diseases, both at UC San Francisco. Dr. Babick is very interested in medical education and serves as the Associate Program Director for Subspecialty Education for the Internal Medicine Residency Program, and is the Assistant Program Director for Curriculum for the Infectious Diseases Fellowship at UC San Francisco. Dr. Babick regularly gives lectures for students, residents, and fellows, as well as pharmacy and dental students. Dr. Babick's primary interests in medical education are creating innovative ways to teach clinical infectious diseases to learners at all levels, developing best practices for effective teaching by consultants, and curriculum development for subspecialty education within internal medicine residency training. Dr. Babick has also been the recipient of multiple teaching awards. Jen, thank you for joining me on the podcast. I've been looking forward to this conversation because so many family and friends are asking really great questions about COVID-19, and I think we would all benefit from your perspective as an infectious disease specialist. Before we get started with questions, is there anything else you'd like to tell our audience about yourself? Well, thank you so much, Ted, for having me on the podcast. Uh, this is such a, an important topic, and I'm, I'm really happy to be here discussing it with you today. It really is. And, and with your expertise in this area, I think you're the perfect one to be speaking with. And I think it's going to be really high yield for, for our listeners. So Jen, can you tell me, what do we know about the incubation period of the COVID-19 virus, essentially from the time when someone is infected to when they start to develop symptoms? So the incubation period ranges from two to 14 days, and that's why the quarantine duration you always hear about is 14 days. Most people, if they do get symptoms, will start to have them by around day four or five after being infected. But we do know that the range is from two to 14 days. Great. 
And Jen, can you tell us how the virus actually acts within the human body to produce symptoms? And how is it that some people get no symptoms or very mild symptoms, while other people can become critically ill or even die as a result of infection? Yeah, that's a great question. So we know that the virus infects cells in the upper and the lower airways, and that this leads to inflammation and an immune response against the virus. So it's actually a combination of both the direct effects of the virus and then the body's immune response against the virus that leads to the symptoms that people have, such as fever, cough, and shortness of breath. The question about why some people get sick, uh, some people get very sick and others do not is, is a really great question. And we don't totally know the answer to that. Um, we do know that older age and the presence of other medical conditions are both risk factors for severe disease. And this is likely due to the immune system not working as well in those patients. So in other words, they're not able to fight off the virus as well. And that's what probably leads to those uh, patients having very severe and, and critical symptoms. Got it. And when you say upper and lower airways, upper airways even includes things like the sinuses and the back of the throat, right? And then getting into the lower airways, thinking more down into the lungs. Yes, exactly. Thank you for clarifying that. Absolutely. So, you know, initially, when we started hearing about COVID-19, we were hearing about the primary symptoms being cough, fever, shortness of breath, and muscle aches. And now we're hearing about other symptoms that can be included in that spectrum, including a loss of the sense of smell. So can you tell the audience a little bit more about other symptoms that have been linked to COVID-19 infection? Yeah. So as you said, the most common symptoms are those kind of main four that you mentioned, fever, cough, shortness of breath, and muscle aches. Some of the less common symptoms that have been reported in some of the larger clinical studies are the typical you know, URI or upper respiratory tract symptoms. And those include headache, sore throat, nasal congestion, or runny nose. Those are seen probably in about less than 15% of patients. Gastrointestinal symptoms are also less common, and that includes symptoms like nausea and vomiting or diarrhea. And those are seen in, in less than a quarter of patients. The, the symptom of loss of smell is really interesting and is kind of an emerging topic that's been mostly in kind of media and social media reports. Um, we haven't seen any major kind of clinical data coming out about how common that is, um, but I've heard that as well. And our, our ear, nose, and throat doctors are very interested in that possibility as well. And th that loss of sense of smell can actually happen with uh, other viruses that cause cold type symptoms and affect our nose and sinuses too. So it's not necessarily unique to COVID-19, correct? That's correct. But I think, as you mentioned, that it's the upper airway, right? It's the sinuses, the back of the throat. You know, when that's getting infected and, and getting inflamed, then that's probably um, partly what it's related to. Yes. So here's a hot button topic. When can we expect more widespread testing capabilities so that more people can be tested and tracked for COVID-19? And, and just kind of, I, I know you may not have you may not be working for the public health department or, or the government have great access to this knowledge. And we're already seeing expanded capabilities, but what, what are you hearing about this? Yeah, that, that's another great question. We do know that testing has been ramping up in many places, including at academic medical centers, as well as in kind of private laboratories. I think it depends a little bit where you are, right, in terms of how widespread your, your testing is. I think we're going to definitely continue to see an expansion in testing over the next few weeks um, as 
certain hospitals are developing their own in-house tests and as the kind of private laboratories are expanding their capabilities as well. So I do expect that, you know, every week that goes by, we're going to see more and more testing. I think everybody realizes that this is really critical to the public health mission. Yes, that's been my experience as well, that it is getting easier to get access to tests. And even the turnaround time is coming down pretty dramatically. So it's nice to see that. This next question that I have for you is one that I've been getting asked over and over, and I don't know the answer to it. So I'm hoping that you might. And the question is, if someone becomes infected with COVID-19 and recovers, or even if they have really mild illness and don't know that they've been infected, and, and then it passes by, can they be considered immune? Or do we think that they may be able to become reinfected? That's such a good question. So I, the bottom line is that we don't really know. Um, the more detailed answer is that uh, there was a recent study in rhesus macaques are a type of um, monkey, basically. And in that study, there did seem to be at least some short-term immunity. So the animals were infected with the COVID-19 virus. And then a month later, they tried to reinfect them. And basically, none of them were able to be reinfected, showing that they at least had a short-term immune response and short-term immunity. What we don't know is whether that will translate into, you know, what we call a durable long-term immune response that will prevent infection in six months or a year or two years. So it's a really good question. And unfortunately, we don't really know uh, the answer to that yet. Right. And this particular, is it fair to say this particular virus, we've really only known about for about three months at this point. And so we just don't have that long-term experience. And so you can't really tell what kind of long-term immunity you're going to have because, you know, we can't see into the future. Is that pretty accurate? Yeah, I think that's right. And I think if we look at the other viruses that it's related to, so SARS that was, uh, that, that came in, in 2003 and MERS in, in 2012, um, they really didn't have, those viruses didn't exist in the population for a long time. So it wasn't really clear if people were becoming immune and then able to um, fight off the infection if they were exposed again. So, you know, to your point that we've only known about this virus for three months, I think there's so much research that's being done uh, on this virus every day. I have a, an alert where I get uh, an email with all of the new publications that come out every day. And in the beginning, it was 13, 15 articles a day, you know, and now it's, you know, 85 or 100 that are being published every single day. And that's just going to increase over time. So a lot of people are interested uh, in many questions around COVID-19, uh, but certainly thinking about the immune response and uh, will it translate into durable long-term immunity? I think that's a, a major question. So, so Jen, since you bring up SARS and, and MERS, and those have both happened within the last 20 years. Those are both coronaviruses as well, correct? That's right. And, and both of those, after having kind of a, a wild initial period where people were getting infected, kind of went away. Um, and right. I think it's important to be students of history and be thinking, you know, what's happened historically. Can you give us just like a, a thumbnail um approach to the history of those and, and kind of what happened and the thoughts around how they just went away? Yeah, it's a it's a, another really good question. So, you know, just to back up and say we're talking about coronavirus, um, which is also the name of the family of viruses. So there are many different types of coronaviruses. There are several different types that cause the common cold. 
And then there are the two that we, we've mentioned that cause the more severe outbreaks. So SARS, which caused severe acute respiratory syndrome in kind of the 2002 to 2003 time point, mostly in Asia. And then MERS, which was the Middle East respiratory syndrome that occurred in 2012. And both of those kind of kind of burned out on their own. Now, MERS, there are still occasionally um, some cases, but SARS kind of just mostly ended. And there are a lot of, there's a lot of speculation about why that may have been. Um, there's some question about, well, was it a seasonal virus and it just kind of burned out when, when the warmer weather came, but that's not totally clear. A lot of people think it might be more related to the aggressive public health measures that were taken. And so we were able to interrupt transmission and therefore the virus kind of just burned out um, in that way. But it's a great question, and we don't totally know why those viruses didn't become, you know, endemic or seasonal in the in the populations. But it's thought to be related to public health measures. Yeah, that's great, and I think that emphasizes the point why we're approaching the public health measures like social distancing so aggressively to try to prevent the spread of this one. And and I think a lot of us have kind of have our fingers crossed that this one will burn out too. Do you have any insights into what the the consensus thinking is right now in terms of whether COVID-19 might burn itself out or might become more of a seasonal infection? Yeah, I think we just don't know. And I, what I've seen, you know, the, the virology experts kind of talking about this, I think the bottom line is that it's too early to know. And we don't know, will we be able to kind of eliminate transmission so much that it, it does kind of burn out completely or will transmission slow and then, you know, we'll have another, you know, uptick uh, in, you know, next year, next fall, next winter, or will it kind of keep going all through the summer? I think we don't really know. We don't totally understand the seasonality of respiratory viruses um, anyway. And so I know a lot of people are hoping or, or postulating that potentially as the summer comes that the virus won't replicate as easily or be transmitted as easily. And I think, unfortunately, we just don't know yet um, if that's true or if that will happen. Right. And there really is just to emphasize a lot that, you know, this is a, a novel virus, a new virus, and, and a lot of these things we just don't know yet. Right. Jen, are there any tests available or tests being developed to be able to test for immunity? So that we'll know if someone was previously infected and developed antibodies to COVID-19? Yes. So the antibody tests are in development. A lot of them are being studied. Um, I've heard that some of them have been available um, in, in research settings in, in, in certain places. They're certainly not available on a large scale basis yet. Um, and I think we're going to hear a lot more about this in the coming you know, weeks even, um, cause I think this is a very large area of interest to better understand how many people have been exposed and are asymptomatic, uh, versus not. Cause I think we don't really understand the scale of, of asymptomatic infection. So in other words, people who are infected and show no symptoms, it's hard to identify those people. Cause at the moment, we're only testing people who have symptoms. Right. Right. And I think there's a lot of people out there that if they had a test available, would like to know if they were infected, even if they just, you know, had a, a mild upper respiratory infection type of spectrum of symptoms, just so that they kind of have a sense of, of where they stand. Definitely. Um, so what, again, our, our knowledge of this is short term and kind of what I'm asking you is more of a long term question. 
Um, but what do we know about any long-term or I guess even kind of intermediate-term effects of the virus? And to our current knowledge, can it affect the hearts, the lungs, the immune system, or any other organs or systems, either in somebody who got mild symptoms or in somebody who had, you know, a more significant illness? Right. So because this is such a, a new virus that we don't know a lot about whether there are any kind of long-term sequelae specific to the virus, certainly people who are hospitalized and who are very ill may have kind of at least intermediate effects just recovering from that illness. And that's not specific to coronavirus. We would see that in people who have um, critical illness from from influenza. So we don't know yet that there are any specific long-term effects related to the virus. For example, the loss of smell that you mentioned, that seems to be reversible. Um, when that's been reported, when people recover from that, um, the, the sense of smell seems to come back. So we don't really know yet about long-term effects. In terms of other organs that are involved, um, we know that COVID-19 mostly affects the airway. So we had talked about the kind of the upper airway and then the lower airway. So in the lungs, um, it can cause pneumonia. And that's really the main um, symptom that um, we've seen and, and what we're watching out for. But we do know the virus can um, also affect the gastrointestinal system and can cause nausea, vomiting, and diarrhea. Um, not that commonly, but it can. It can also affect the liver. And it's not totally clear if that's related to direct infection from the virus or whether it's related to the immune system trying to fight the virus and it's just kind of a, a bystander effect. And then there was a recent small study of critically ill patients in Seattle that was published last, last week that showed that a third of the patients had impaired heart function. Um, suggesting that either the virus was infecting the heart or it was some immune-related effect on the heart. So it's not totally clear why, um, but it was um, a phenomenon that they reported out of Seattle. Science! 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 Hello, podcast fans. Want to get weird with us? Come check out the Mad Scientist podcast. We are a weekly show that looks at the history, philosophy, and hard facts behind your biggest paranormal questions. Did the government really pay for a psychic spy program? Yes. Is it true that surgery got its start in grave robbing? Yes. Can a roller coaster really kill you? Legally, we can't say so for sure, but sometimes, yes! Woo! Join myself, Chris Cogswell, and my co-host, Marie Mayhew, as we examine the science, philosophy, and history behind the strange and unusual. All to discover what's possible and plausible versus what's, well, just made up. Check us out wherever you find your favorite podcasts. The Mad Scientist Podcast. Yes, I've seen some reports about cardiomyopathy, which is kind of enlargement of the heart and can sometimes be reversible, and arrhythmias, which is irregular heartbeats. Exactly. Um, and even inflammation, even inflammation of the heart itself. Is that, that's what you're kind of referring to from what you've been hearing out of Seattle, right? Yes, exactly. So in that study, a third of patients had, had cardiomyopathy, as, as you're describing, and, and then a proportion of them also had arrhythmias. And we don't know, is that just their experience there for some reason, that specific population of, of patients, or is that going to be more widespread? That hadn't really been reported in all of the clinical studies that came out of China and, and Singapore. Um, so it was kind of a new finding that had been widely discussed on social media before the report came out. But it's something that certainly we're thinking about now and, and, and making sure to at least be on the lookout for in our patients. Great. Um, Jen, so what do we know about 
whether COVID-19 can mutate or develop other strains, such as what we see with seasonal flu, where it's kind of different every year, and we're developing vaccines trying to, to get, get at that. Right. So the coronaviruses are a different family of viruses compared to influenza, and their genetic material is structured very differently. Um, so the virus may not be able to mutate in the same way that influenza can. But unfortunately, we just don't know yet how this is going to play out over time. And as we discussed previously, the question will, you know, of will it become seasonal? Will it change every year? Those questions we just don't know the answer to. At the moment, it doesn't seem to be, you know, widely mutating such that it, it looks like a different strain. But again, there's so much research being done. And I apologize for being a broken record and saying that, that there's so much that we don't, don't know yet. I, no, I, I don't think you should be apologizing for that at all. It's, you know, this is a new phenomenon for us. The amount that we're learning on a daily basis is phenomenal, as you mentioned, with how many research articles are hitting your inbox every single day, and that number is accelerating. So we're learning quickly, but we, you know, there is just a lot that we, we don't yet know. And so at this point, as they start to develop a vaccine or vaccines for this virus, we just don't know if they're going to be targeting this particular COVID-19 or if they're going to have to take a different approach in a year, correct? That's correct. Yeah. So can you talk with us? Now, this is a, a kind of big topic, I think, um, at also not with a whole lot of data behind it. But can you talk with us a bit about treatment options, such as what has been tried to treat patients who are, you know, particularly sick and hospitalized with COVID, what has been successful, and what has not worked? Yeah, so as of now, there are no treatments that are clearly effective for COVID-19. The standard of care is supportive care. And what we mean by that is managing the symptoms that people are having, providing oxygen um, and other you know, supportive care as needed. There are a few promising drugs that are being actively studied. The first is an antiviral drug called remdesivir. And it seems to have activity against the COVID-19 virus when it's studied uh, what we call in vitro. And that means when you're studying it in the lab, in a test tube or in a Petri dish. So you have the virus and the drug together and you're seeing in that environment if it's effective. We don't yet have any clinical data. So any data in patients on its efficacy against COVID-19, although there are trials underway at many medical centers, including ours uh, right now uh, in the United States. And then the second drug that, that people may have heard about um, is chloroquine, uh, which is a drug that's been long used in the treatment of malaria and a derivative of this drug called hydroxychloroquine. The brand name for that is Plaquenil. So you may have heard of that. That's sometimes used in, in autoimmune disorders. Both of these drugs have also shown efficacy in vitro. So again, that's kind of in the lab environment. And a small study, um, you know, in a handful of patients that's recently been published showed possible efficacy in in humans. But again, that data is very, uh, there's a very small amount of it and, and I think is very much still emerging. So we really don't know yet if that is effective. And then lastly, you may have heard um, some people talking about um, a drug called lopinavir ritonavir, and the brand name for that is Kaletra. And that's a drug that's um, been used to treat HIV in the past, we don't really use it very much anymore. And that was recently shown not to be effective um, in a trial that was published last week in the New England Journal of Medicine. Okay, great. And if it's all right with you, I'd actually like to take just a little bit of a dive 
into a couple of those medications. Uh, my understanding about remdesivir is it's not actually being used to treat other illnesses like hydroxychloroquine is. It's actually in this compassionate use category where they're trying it for, for COVID-19, but not necessarily pulling it from another set of diseases. Is that accurate? Correct. It, it is not um, currently FDA approved to treat um, any other uh, indication. It it was a drug that similarly at this, you know, had a lot of promise for Ebola, uh, but then was found not to be effective for Ebola. So it, it is an antiviral that doesn't yet have a place in our kind of um, therapeutic armamentarium. And there are, there are really two ways of getting it. One is to enter a trial. So a drug trial where you're looking at remdesivir versus placebo to see, is it actually effective? And then for people who don't qualify for the trial, then you can try to get it on a compassionate use basis. But the word is that that, that, that second category has been much harder to um, obtain remdesivir um, by that route. Okay. And if, and then diving kind of into the into the chloroquine and hydroxychloroquine medications, Plaquenil, essentially. Can you tell us a bit about how this medication might work to treat COVID nineteen infection and and how effective it's considered to be? Yeah, so they're they're both being studied for treatment and prevention, actually, as well of COVID nineteen, and we don't yet know if they're effective. And, and it's important to point out that both of these medicines can have pretty serious side effects, including effects on the heart, um, the arrhythmias that you, that you had mentioned earlier. And even on the brain, there can be seizures as a side effect and they can be dangerous and even lethal when taken in, in high doses. They also can have drug interactions with other medications. Many of your listeners may have heard about the very high profile case of a couple who, who took the, the chemical chloroquine, um, that is used in, a, uh, for cleaning aquariums and, and one of them died. And so it's really important that people not take these medications without input from a doctor. It's not advisable to try to get a supply of them just in case as well. Um, this can lead to shortages for those who will need it either because they're already taking hydroxychloroquine for an autoimmune disease, or if we do find that it is effective for COVID, then it might not be available later to those who need it. Right. And I think what you're saying kind of brings up thinking about all of these things from a societal standpoint with the social distancing and the hygiene we're trying to prevent the healthcare system from becoming overwhelmed so that we can actually take care of the people who are seriously ill with COVID-19 and all of the other people who are having heart attacks and strokes and issues with diabetes and all the other things that bring people to the hospital. And you want to be able to provide care for them. Similarly with Plaquenil, if, if we're just dispensing it to everybody who's concerned, then those who actually need it won't have access to it. And those who have autoimmune conditions that they're taking it for will be suffering the consequences. Right, Jen? That's right. And I think it's really critical to drive home the point that, at least as of today, we really do not know if this drug is effective against COVID-19. Um, the data is very slim at the moment, and, and we really don't know if it works. And I think you know, we, we all understand that there's a lot of emotion around this disease. This is a, a very challenging and, and unprecedented time for all of us. But it's also very important that we remember 
you know, as physicians, the principles of what we call evidence-based medicine, and we practice medicine based on, on data that we have. And of course, in an outbreak situation like this, we're data is coming out every day. We don't always know the answers. Um, and as we've talked about, there's so much we don't know, but it is important as best we can to keep grounded in the, in the data so that we make sure that we follow our kind of responsibilities as physicians to first do no harm. I'm going to ask you a question here, Jen, that you may not know the answer to. And it's kind of out of my own curiosity, just thinking about this. But with a medication like hydroxychloroquine or Plaquenil, how does the idea enter to try that for treating COVID nineteen? Where you know, where does somebody get the idea to say that I have a critically ill patient here in the hospital? Let's try giving them hydroxychloroquine because we don't know what else to do. So there were there were some in vitro studies of of chloroquine um, as an antiviral and. I don't exactly know what the initial reports were, but it was used in China. So they, they were, you know, in a, in a serious situation in, in Wuhan and they were really giving a lot of different drugs, uh, to, to their patients in an attempt, I think, really just to try, to try anything. And so, so it kind of came out that they were using chloroquine and then people were looking into, well, what are the antiviral effects of chloroquine and how does it work? And then a report came out where they were looking in vitro, as I mentioned, and they looked at chloroquine against the COVID-19 virus. It was a similar, uh, in the same report, they also looked at remdesivir and both of them showed a lot of promise in vitro. But it's really important to point out that that does not necessarily translate into having, uh, an effect in humans. And there are many, drugs that have uh, an effect in vitro that then do not work uh, once they enter studies in either animals or in humans. Right. Sometimes things that look good in the lab or even look good in animals just don't translate when you introduce them into humans, right? Or or you find side effects and, and downsides to them. Exactly. Or the dose that you need to replicate the conditions in the lab you know, are, are prohibited in humans and cause too much toxicity. Right. Now, there have been reports in the media about using blood from people who've been infected with COVID-19 and recovered as an emergency treatment for sick people to provide them antibodies to fight infection. That And this is also called convalescent serum and has been done with other illnesses. What can you tell us about this approach and when it's been used in the past and whether it might be effective for COVID-19? Right. So as you mentioned, it's called convalescent serum, and that's because it comes from, it's the blood of people who have recovered or convalesced from their illness. And it has been used in other outbreaks, for example, in measles and in polio before vaccines were available. And it was also used uh, during the Ebola outbreak. So people may remember um, hearing about that. It's not yet known uh, if this will work for COVID-19. It certainly could have risks because you're giving blood products from, from other people. And it's not clear how scalable it would be. So meaning that it's not known how you could ramp up on this on a large scale to treat a lot of people, but it is something that's being actively studied. Um, and there are, there are many um, reports of people looking into this. Great. Thank you for that explanation. Jen, before we start to wrap this up, is there anything else about COVID-19 that you want to make sure the public knows or any important topics that I haven't asked you about that you want to get out there? Yeah, that's, that's a good question. I, I think, you know, just reflecting on what we're all going through right now, I think, you know, this is, this is really hard for, for many people on, on many levels. There are many people who have 
lost their jobs or who are, you know, in the, in a service industry and, and no longer have jobs available. There are, um, as you mentioned, you know, many businesses are, are suffering. People are trying to work from home. People are trying to homeschool. Their kids are supervised the homeschooling. So there's a lot, I think, in every sector, uh, people are, are feeling this. And, you know, I just want to kind of give the message that we're all in this together and we're going to get through this together. And it's, it's been very, um, heartwarming to see the way people have been pulling together during this time. And, you know, I think we will come through this and we will come to the other side. And I, and I hope that we, you know, we'll keep some of that, that togetherness uh, when we come out of this. Yes, that's that's a great message, Jen. I, I think the idea of togetherness and recognizing the humanity in one another and realizing that each of us is, you know, has other things going on in his or her life. And, and so if you see somebody getting, you know, angry in line at a grocery store, just to step back for a moment and realize they're stressed and there's something else going on in their lives. And, you know, the more we think about this together and from a societal standpoint, the more likely it is that we'll get through this faster, I, I think is what we all hope. Yeah, I agree. And speaking of that togetherness, I want to ask you the same question that I kind of led with. Are there any small businesses or restaurants in your community that you would like to mention and encourage people to go pick up some dinner sometime in the next week and, and try to help them get through this? Yeah, I would say so. I, I live in San Francisco. And, and one of our favorite restaurants is, is called Baco. And it's an Italian restaurant and it's been in our neighborhood for a long time. And I know that they're, they've converted to, to a takeout business and, and we kind of feel close to the owners and we, we love going there. So we um, really want them to be able to come through this. That's great. And I'm sure they'll appreciate the, the mention on this, on this podcast. Jen, I want to thank you for coming on and joining us. I was very sincere in telling you that. The questions that you're able to answer are ones that we are all getting all the time. And so we really, really appreciate your expertise and your time when you, as an infectious disease doctor, are no doubt extremely busy in the hospital. Um, so on behalf of the podcast and our audience, thank you very much for joining us. Well, thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. That's it for today. Thanks for listening. This has been a production of Ars Longa Media. Our producers are Madison Linden and Chris Brightigan. Our executive producer is Dr. Patrick Beeman. If you have questions about COVID-19 that you'd like discussed on the podcast, send an email to info at arslanga.media. This podcast is for educational purposes only and not intended for medical advice. Be vigilant, but remain calm. Ars Longa, Vita Brevis.